0: We know that a wedding requires a whole lot to come together. I I know that that may not be true in every single circumstance. Some are going to require more planning than others. But by and large, in today's day and time, we know that weddings require a whole lot of planning. I mean, even from the very beginning, when you have a young man and a young woman who have decided that they want to get married, there are things that have to happen in order for them to get to their wedding day. The first thing, of course, is that the man has to go and purchase an engagement ring and bring it to her and ask a very important question, will you marry me? To which she does have to agree, right? After that, they're going to set a wedding date, right? the day when they are going to be married. Maybe that's a few weeks down the road, maybe that's a few months down the road, who knows. But that is down the road, and all along the way, there are things that have to happen and will happen if they are eagerly anticipating their wedding day. There's things like deciding who is going to do the wedding. There's asking a minister to officiate. There's selecting a venue and getting it booked. There's asking bridesmaids and groomsmen and getting bridesmaids' dresses and, and groomsmen's tuxes. There is getting wedding rings. There is getting a marriage license. There is so, uh, getting a wedding dress and a tux for the groom. There's so much that has to go in to getting ready for a wedding. And now, how silly would it be if they have this date down the line in the future that they're eagerly anticipating, and they just sat idly by and didn't do anything? You've had a moment where they said that they've come into agreement that they're going to be married at their engagement. You could say that that was the moment where their family was inaugurated, and they have this day when they'll come together and make oaths to one another, when they'll make vows to one another, when they'll uh, share wedding rings in which we would say that their family unit has come into its fullness, that they're eagerly waiting for. Well, how silly would it be? They just didn't do anything for this day that they were greatly anticipating, that they longed for. It's safe to say that anticipation causes preparation. So then, I think that raises a question for us, for believers who have gathered to hear the Word of God taught. What does it look like for you and I to anticipate the Lord's return? I mean, let's, let's be honest. If you are a believer, that is a day that you are longing for. Is it not? I mean, even now as we have prayed for our brothers and sisters at Covenant Church, we consider all of the horrible things that take place in the world, does that not increase in you just a, del- a desire for the day when these things are no more? When your sin is no more? When people no longer sin against you? and there's no more death, there's no more sickness, there's no more suffering, there's no more war, there's no more poverty, when all of these things... Are put away. Every Christian longs for Christ's kingdom to come into its fullness. But the anticipation of that day will cause preparation on the part of the believer. Our question is what does that look like? Well, in our text this morning, as Tom's already read, what we have seen and will see. Are two negative examples, two examples of what that does not look like. Now I want you to remember where we've been over the course of our time in First and Second Samuel. This requires that we go all the way back to First Samuel chapter eight, where Israel comes to Samuel, their prophet and their judge, and they ask him for a king. But not just any king; they wanted a king who would judge them like all of the nations. Samuel turns to the Lord with this request of theirs, and the Lord says, I will give them exactly what they have asked for. And he does, as an act of discipline to them and on them for their faithlessness. He gives them Saul. And we know that that Saul started out okay. He delivered them from their enemies. He saved uh, Israelites from those who wanted to do them harm. But we know that Saul ultimately did not trust the Lord. He would not submit to the word of God. He would not obey it. And for that, the Lord tore the kingdom away from him to give it to another, one who sought his own heart. We learned in 1 Samuel 16 that that man was David. So there, going all the way back to 1 Samuel 16, David, we saw, has been anointed as the true king over Israel. But he did not take the throne right away. No, he spent a long time wandering in the wilderness. Not just wandering, but being chased out into it by Saul who wanted to kill him and who tried very hard to kill him. But it was not Saul who killed David. David actually had opportunities all along the way where he himself could have struck down Saul. Where the people around him even said, David, look, now the Lord has given Saul into your hands. Now is the moment. Now you can strike him down. Now you can take what is rightfully yours. But David wouldn't. Because David trusted the Lord. The throne was was the Lord's to give. Saul was the Lord's anointed. He was for the Lord to deal with. David would not put his hand out against the Lord's anointed because to do so would have been to not trust the Lord. But now what we've seen is that Saul is dead, having fallen in battle against the Philistines. And David, in the text Michael preached last week, has been anointed as king... But king over one tribe, he is over the tribe of Judah, which admittedly one of the bigger tribes in Israel, but it is still only one, and he is reigning over that tribe, the tribe of Judah, at Hebron. Meanwhile, Abner, Saul's uncle, has taken Saul's remaining son, or one of Saul's remaining sons, Ishbosheth, and has made him king over the rest of Israel. So David, his reign has begun. But it has not come into its fullness just yet. Let's pray and then turn our eyes to the text. Father, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for your word, which leads us to know you and worship you and serve you in the world that you have made. Instruct us by your word. Work through your word in each of our hearts, increasing delight in us, in you, longing for you, wanting to serve you, wanting to bring you glory, convict us of sin, encourage us where we're downhearted, point us to Christ, and may we honor and glorify him in our time this morning. Amen. So the first thing for us to see, the first command, I think, to see in the text is do not oppose God's kingdom. Now, I want you to look again at verses 12 through 17, where we see this battle that breaks out between Abner and Joab. Well, in verse 12, we read that Abner brings the servants of Ishbosheth, his army, down to Gibeon. Uh, Gibeon is a Benjaminite city that's located only about five miles from the border with the tribe of Judah. Now, you Probably remember that Saul uh, is from the tribe of Benjamin, therefore, Abner, Ishbosheth, this is their tribe, a city in their tribe that Abner has brought his soldiers down to. And, and the text doesn't explicitly tell us why he does this. And so we might be inclined to think oh, well, because it's a Benjaminite city, he's probably just coming down to reinforce the troops there uh, or to establish a base of operation for Ishbosheth. But I think the, clue, the text actually clues us in uh, to, that something far more is going on here uh, in terms of Abner's intentions in even bringing the troops down in the first place. The first is the geography itself. Now, we read that they come down from Mahanaim, which we know that's where ish is reigning, where Abner has made ish king over the rest of Israel. Uh, Mahanaim is actually up from Judah and to the east, I believe, uh, on the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, so Abner has actually had to bring his troops across the Jordan River and down into Israel proper, the part of the, the land that Israel or into the land that Israel possessed out of the the area that they had been given to to two and a half tribes uh, coming out of the Exodus, he has had to bring them over and down to get to uh, the city of Gibeon. So that's our first clue. The second is what he says to Joab when Joab comes up to meet him. Look again at verse 14. He says, Let the young men arise and compete before us. So what Abner is uh, proposing to Joab is representative warfare. I'm going to send out my best twelve, you send out your best twelve, they're going to do the fighting, and whoever wins, that, that, that army wins. They win the whole kit and caboodle. Now, you might think to yourself, I feel like, I, I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. And if you're thinking that, then you are absolutely correct in 1 Samuel, in chapter 17. There, the army of Israel has gathered against the Philistines. And it's the Philistine champion, Goliath, who has marched out of the Philistine camp and has challenged Israel and said, You send out your champion and let them fight me. And if they beat me, then you'll be, we will be your slaves. But if I win... You'll be our slaves. So that paints Abner's actions here for us, I think, in an entirely different light. Abner is acting like a Philistine. And so what we see is that Abner has not come out with any intentions of negotiating a peace treaty. He doesn't want to set up a trade partnership. There is no alliance that he is stri- seeking to form here. Now, Abner has come out... To fight, specifically to fight against David and to to depose him, to put away this king that he has no desire to follow, no desire to submit to. And so then, when we consider Joab's actions in verse 13, I think we are right to look at them and consider them to be reasonable. He has come up to face this threat that has been posed to his king, the true king of Israel. And so they've met at this pool, the pool of Gibeon, which is about 40 feet across. And I want you to just imagine the scene, what they must have felt in that moment. Israelites, God's covenant people, are staring across the water at Israelites, God's covenant people. And so then, I think it makes sense as to why Joab agreed to Abner's terms when Abner approached him. Let them have this representative battle because perhaps in that way it will prevent the shed of more Israelite blood than is necessary. I don't know. What we do know, though, is that the plan fails, and it fails horribly. We see in verse 16 that "...each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side so that they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helcath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon." And you probably have that helpful little note there in the text, uh, down at, below the text, where it tells you that Helcath Hazarim means filled of the sword edges. That tells us everything we need to know about what happened. They all died by the edge of the sword." that's a tragedy. This should evoke in us sadness that 24 of God's covenant people have just killed one another. They're all dead. And then after this, a much larger battle breaks out, which we see in verse 17. And there we read that the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner And the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And so we come to that. And what we have to understand that the text is pointing us to is that Abner is a fool. But he's not a fool because of some silly strategy that he's employed. No, Abner is a fool for even coming out to fight. Now, if we were to just take a step back, I think we could understand what must be going through Abner's head in his taking the troops down to Gibeon. He's looking at David in the south, the king that he does not want to follow, that he does not want to submit to, and thinking, he only has one tribe. I've got the other eleven. David, right now, is vulnerable. So let me strike while the iron is hot. Go ahead and cut the head off of the snake. So before he can get any stronger, and I'll have him out of the way. I'll have him out of the picture. And then Ishbosheth can reign, which, as we saw last week, was really Abner can reign through his puppet king, Ishbosheth. And so, militarily, we should look at that and go, well, that's not a bad strategy. But strategy isn't the issue. The issue is knowledge. See, Abner is a fool because he knew that David was the Lord's chosen king. I want you to look just a little further down into the next chapter. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. So Abner is going to get upset with ish and in his anger, he says this to him. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. Now come down just a few more verses to verse 18. He's now doing what he said, just told Ishbosheth he would do. In, starting in verse 17, it says, And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying... For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised to David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner knows that David is the Lord's anointed. He knows that the Lord has placed David as king over his covenant people to unite them together, to deliver them from from their enemies. He knows. He just doesn't care. And so you need to understand what this means. To oppose the Lord's anointed is to oppose God himself. That's what Abner has done. In setting himself against David, he has set himself against the Lord. See, Abner was anticipating the kingdom of God. But what did it produce in him? Revolt. Rebellion. Rejection of the Lord's true king. He refused to serve the Lord's king, which is in and of itself refusal to serve the Lord and rebellion against God's rule. So Abner knows the truth. He just refuses to embrace it. The question is are you and I doing the same thing? Do you try to justify? things in your life, even though you know that the Lord has explicitly condemned them in His Word? Are you pushing away from the Word of God and from the people of God? Because when you sit under its teaching, when you read it, when you hear it taught, when you come around the people of God and you observe lives of faithfulness and joy in the Lord, you recognize That none of that is present in you. That your life does not line up with the Word of God. And is that producing in you pushing away? Pushing away from the Word. Pushing away from reading it. Pushing it away from gathering with God's people because you don't like the conviction that it brings on you. To the skeptic, first I would say, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming and being here. But I have a question for you. And I just want to, I want to ask if perhaps you have considered this. Have you considered that perhaps the reason why you reject arguments in favor of the truth claims of Christianity has nothing to do with the truth claims themselves? Has nothing to do with the proof that you have been presented with for the truth of Christianity? And is it perhaps simply because you do not want to submit to the rule of another, specifically to the rule of Christ, to the rule of God. See, all of these are ways in which you and I are prone and capable of walking in Abner's error. You're responding to the rule of God by setting yourself against him. So let Abner Serve as a warning to you. God's kingdom will be established under the rule of his king in his timing. His king will rule in full. Those who oppose him and those who oppose his king, they will fall. Their efforts to get out from under his rule and his reign will ultimately fail. But his king is good. Christ shows mercy to his repentant enemies. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So submit to God. Rejoice in the coming of his kingdom Don't oppose it. The second command out of the text that we need to see is wait patiently for God's kingdom. Now, I think for us coming to this text, we look at it and go, well, verse 17 seems like a really good stopping point. The enemies of God and his people have come out. They have been defeated. They've been turned back. What's the rest of this about? Well, What we see is that David's forces, yes, they win, but at great cost, which says something to us about what it looks like to faithfully wait for the coming of God's king in full. So we see in verse uh, 18 that the sons of Zeruiah were present during this battle. Zeruiah was David's sister which makes her sons David's nephews. And we've already been introduced to these fellas a, a little bit um, going back into 1 Samuel. We met Abishai there in 1 Samuel 26, where David has come down into the encampment of Saul, and the Lord has put a deep sleep over Saul and over Abner and over the army that Saul had brought out with him to track down David and kill him. So David is able to come in because of the Lord's work in putting this deep sleep over them and take Saul's spear, take his water jug, and get back out without them ever waking up. But we know that David was not alone. He had Abishai with him. And do you remember what Abishai said to him? He says, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear... And I will not strike him twice. The sons of Zeruiah, they get things done. If there is someone in the way that needs to be gotten out of the way, these are your guys. We're going to see that with Joab next week and in subsequent chapters, that if you mess with Joab and you mess with his family, you're going to get a belly in your gut. So then, knowing what we know about these brothers that they are quick to strike against their enemies. They want to strike while the iron's hot. It doesn't surprise us then, or at least it shouldn't, when we see Asahel take off after Abner. And I think it's easy, too, to kind of get in the mind of Asahel and go, well, I I can see what he's thinking. We already have read that he's swift of foot as a wild gazelle, which is perhaps the best description of saying someone is fast that you could, possibly, you could possibly write. That's wonderful. So he's fast. He knows he's fast. He looks across the battlefield, and there's Abner. So know what's in his head. I'm fast. Faster than that guy. He's brought the enemies of my king, my uncle, out against him. He wants to stop my uncle, the Lord's king, from ruling. Well, I can chase him down right now. I can cut the head off of the snake. I can strike while the iron's hot. I can put him away. Clear the path for my king to rule. That guy dies, the throne is his. But doesn't that sound familiar? Should. Because that's Abner 2.0. Abner had decided that he could cut the head off the snake so that his king could reign. Asahel is not any different. And so what we see in Asahel is that opposition to the kingdom of God can take different forms. For some, it looks like open hostility. But for others... It's just growing tired of waiting on the Lord to act. It's his ambition that gets him killed. Abner sees that Asahel is after him. And so turning back, he looks and says, Asahel, is is that you? I guess when you have the flash coming after you, it kind of limits the number of people that it could be. Ask, "Is, is, is this you? And Asahel says, oh yeah. It's me. And so Abner says, Turn aside. Take someone on the right. Take someone on the left. Turn away from following me and take the spoil of another. Asahel won't hear it. He keeps coming. So Abner tries again. Why should I kill you? Don't you know that if I strike you to the ground, I'm not going to be able to face your brother Joab? Which tells us something of Abner's intentions. He doesn't intend to take out everyone who's loyal to David, just David. And after that, they can all be one big happy family again under the rule of his king. Asahel won't have it, though. He's determined to get his man to take out the enemy of his king, to remove him so that his king can reign. And so Abner, seeing that it's kill or be killed, does what he has to do. He plants his spear in the ground, and Asahel dies. You can read for yourself what's in the text. It's gruesome. There's no need to belabor the point. But we know that his death is so horrible that those who happen upon it are stopped in their tracks. Whether it's out of sorrow, whether it's out of horror, whether it's out of revulsion, some combination of the 3 we you'll know. But they're stopped dead in their tracks and now i think that we want to look at asahel and we read about how horrible of a death he died and because of that we want to feel pity for him we want to make excuses for him i mean he was fighting for the lord's king after all wasn't he wasn't he right to try to establish david's throne because he was fighting for the lord's king after all Don't fall for that. See, unlike David, Asahel is not and does not wait on the Lord to act. The throne was the Lord's to give. So when David would begin to rule over all of the people unified together, that was the Lord's prerogative. So to try and do what is only the Lord's to do is just another way to oppose the Lord. So Asahel, he doesn't submit to the Lord's will and to the Lord's timing. And he dies for it. So the reality is, Asahel is just as much a fool as Abner is. He was aware that the Lord had made David king and yet took it upon himself to secure the throne for David. It's foolish, because what we see in this text is that if David had wanted to take the throne himself, he could have done that. I mean, think about that, really. His one tribe defeats thoroughly the armies from 11 others. So if he wanted to march his troops up to Mahanaim to take out Ishbosheth, to take out Abner, and unite Israel around himself, all on his own, he could have done that. But that wouldn't be trusting the Lord. That wouldn't be trusting the Lord's timing. And that's not how God's king acts. But we read that the battle continues after Asahel's death. Joab and Abishai, they continue to pursue Abner and his troops until Abner and his forces gain somewhat of a tactical advantage. We read that they gather together on top of a hill and rally together. And so from there, Abner makes his appeal to another son of Zeruiah, this time making his appeal to Joab, saying to him, When are you going to stop? How much longer are we going to do this? How much longer are brothers going to kill brothers? When will you call off the dogs? And so Joab agrees. But listen to what he says. As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. It's dripping with threat. If you hadn't said stop... You'd all be dead by the time the sun comes up tomorrow. And so what we see is that, really, Joab's not any different from Abner and from Asahel. But he does relent for now. And everyone goes on their way. And so what you get in the end is a reversal of the beginning of the text. Abner is marching back up to Mahanaim, with his tail tucked between his legs, having lost 360 of his own men. But there's sorrow in Joab's camp, too. David's forces didn't get off scot-free. In fact, as we saw, Joab's own brother is dead. And so what could have been a victory march for them was, in fact, just a funeral procession as they take Asahel's body down to Bethlehem to lay him to rest. And so we come to the end of the text. And if you're like me, when I read it, when I saw what Michael had assigned to me, you're probably like, What do I do with this? What what does this mean for me and how I live a life of godliness, to live to to the glory of God? Well, we have to recognize that this wasn't just given to us to teach us some moral lessons to walk out of here with. Oh, you need to not oppose God's kingdom, you need to be patient work on that, let's go eat jalapenos. No. There's far more to it than that. As Christians, looking back at this through the lens of the New Testament, with New Covenant eyes, we have to see how this text brings us to the rule and reign of our King, of Christ our Lord. See, this in-between time, between David had been inaugurated as king, And when His reign would eventually be consummated, would come into its fullness over all of Israel, it foreshadows the already but the not yet reality of Christ's own rule, the day in which you and I live. We know that Christ's rule and His reign has been inaugurated. We look to the cross, and we know that the cross was the means by which God has provided for the forgiveness of our sins and for our justification through the death and resurrection of Christ. Our sins are paid for through His resurrection. We have been those who repent and believe and put their faith in Christ are justified. We are made right with God. We have been reconciled to Him and praise the Lord for that. But there's more going on at the cross than just the forgiveness of our sins than just our justification. The cross was also the means of Christ's glorification. See, in in His death and resurrection, Christ has accomplished the work necessary for the formation of the kingdom of God. He has atoned for the sins of His people. He has purified a people for Himself and by the Spirit is gathering His people together under His rule and under His reign. By grace through faith. Christian, you have come into the kingdom, and you know that even now you are beginning to experience life in that kingdom. Your sins are forgiven. The wrath of God no longer remains on you. The Spirit of God has written the law of God on our hearts such that we know Him, such that we know what it looks like to honor Him, to worship and serve Him in the world that He has made. But He's also given us new affections and He's given us new desires such that not only are we able to do that, but we want to do that. Now we hate our sin. We see it in our lives and we want it gone. We've been united To one another in Christ. We've been brought together in little pockets of the kingdom. Little embassies of the kingdom in the local church. Where we encourage one another. Where we correct one another. Where we urge one another on to righteousness. All because he has brought us under his rule and reign. And under his rule and reign, even now... He is growing us in his righteousness, the righteousness with which he has covered us, the righteousness by which you, Christian, and the only means by which you, Christian, will be able to stand justified before a holy God. Praise the Lord. But while all of these things are true of us and true for us, We also regularly, daily, feel the not-yet reality of His rule, do we not? We still sin. We still sin against. Loved ones die. We see horrible things happen in the world around us. Yet, we are a people who are living with a great and glorious hope of the day When his kingdom will come into its fullness. I mean, just just think about that day for a moment. Because of what he has done, we will be brought into the new heavens and the new earth, be reunited to loved ones who have gone before us, we'll be free from our sin. It's death grip on us, broken and gone for forever. No more sorrow, no more shame, no more hurt. And yet as great as these things are, and as much as I'm sure you long for them just as I long for them, as great as they are, these are not the greatest treasures of heaven. The greatest treasure of heaven, Christian, is that you will be with your Savior. You will see Him face to face. We will behold our Redeemer. What a glorious day that will be when our faith becomes sight, when we see and dwell with Christ our Lord for forever. With the joy that we have in anticipating that day, in longing for that day, should do something in us. Are you longing for that day? Oh, how I hope that you are. Well, then be making yourself ready for it. See, Jesus makes it clear that that's what His disciples will be doing. Consider, consider Matthew 25, Verses 1 through 13, where Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. But when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Five of the women do what is necessary to be ready when the bridegroom comes. The other five do not. And for that, when he does arrive... They're left out in the dark. The point's clear. The bridegroom will return, and you do not know the hour. So make yourself ready for it. Anticipate his return, and prepare yourself for it. See, this text shows us that there are two ways in which that we might fail to prepare for the coming of God's kingdom, two ways that we can fail to prepare rightly. They're not the only ways. There are others. And so I want you to think about a few things and ask yourself the question, are you making yourself ready? These that I'm going to give to you are ways that you're not, that we do not make ourselves ready. Are they true of you? Do you sit around watching the news And every time you see a war, a rumor of war, or this thing, this event, or that event, you find yourself going, oh, this is it. This is the moment. This is when he comes back. And then it comes and goes, but you're still left, watching the news, watching for signs. Do you find yourself sitting in the pew, week after week, bringing in with you the exact same pet sin the week before, that you know is there that you're just not even concerned with. You're not worried about it. It doesn't bother you, so you feel no burden to deal with it. Are you always gossiping? Are you slow to offer forgiveness? Are you quick to complain? See, this is not being about the work that the Lord has given us to do. This is what the Bible defines as idleness. If that's true of you, repent, trust Jesus, and follow him. See, Jesus commands his disciples to prepare for that day when his kingdom is established in full. His disciples respond in faith by bringing their lives under the authority of his word. We look at our lives and we say every thought, every word, every deed, I want it governed by this, by the word that he has given to me. We see that this is his expectation and what his disciples will do in his own words in the Gospel of John. John fourteen thirteen, and then 23 and 24 say, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And so then, preparing for the kingdom to come in its fullness is really simple. It's doing what he says. It is to keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine, while also keeping a close watch on the life and the doctrine of those whom the Lord has gathered you with inside the local church. So this then looks like being diligent to put away your sin. It looks like studying the Bible regularly and with joy and applying what it says to your life. It's to sit under, to come and sit under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. To gather with God's people, to sing praise to God to pray to the Lord, to confess sin together, to thank Him for what He has done, letting nothing come between me and the gathering of the saints that I might be edified by my time with them and through the preaching and teaching of the Word. It's being diligent in prayer, evangelizing the lost, discipling your children, being patient with one another, forgiving one another, correcting one another, urging one another on to repentance encouraging one another in the Lord and teaching others to obey all that Christ has commanded. Our anticipation of the coming of Christ's kingdom will be producing these things in us and so much more. It's a lot like a bride and a groom preparing for their wedding day because of their anticipation of that day, they make themselves ready. Well, Christian, do you not know that we are preparing for a wedding feast as well? There's work to be done as the bride of Christ makes herself ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for the confidence that we can have in it, that by it you will work all that you intend to work in those who are yours. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do it. Make it fruitful for your glory and our good. Amen.